Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Harriet Minter and this is the Badass Women's Hour. This week on the show, I'm talking about the article that has been the most shared on my social media why the pandemic has exposed how little we care about motherhood. Talking to Nell Frizzle about her book, The Panic Years, and just why it is that some women have to think so hard about having children when men don't seem to give it a second thought, and helping one woman get over her fear of working from home. But before we get started, tomorrow is the official launch of my new book, WFH, How to Build a Career You Love When You're Not in the Office. It's all about how to design a working life that fits with the rest of your life while still making sure all your ambitions are met. It's a book about getting ahead without having to spend your entire life in the office or give up part of your freedom just for a pay rise. There are tips on how to manage your boss and your team when you work remotely, as well as ideas on how to create virtual networks and promote yourself online. But mostly it's about working out how you tick, what makes work exciting for you and going after the things you really want. As much as any book about work can be, it's a book about desire and I'm really proud of it for that. It's available in all the usual places, Amazon, Waterstones, Blackwells, but I particularly love bookshop.org, a website which is supporting local bookshops during the pandemic. And now let's get back to the show. So first thing on this week is working mums. Look, I can't claim to have any personal experience of this. It is a running joke amongst my friends that whenever I hold their babies, both of us start screaming. But watching my friends try and balance homeworking with homeschooling over the pandemic really showed me how far we've failed when it comes to gender equality at home. Over the past 12 months, I've seen article after article from men wondering just how they hadn't realized how much their wives did when it came to the household chores. Oh my gosh, there's so much to be done at home. Um, seemingly every male journalist out there has had a wake up call as to how little they do at home. And then they've retreated to their study to write about it. This week, however, has been the week when we finally hear from the women about how things are for them. In a piece on The Guardian, journalist Natasha Walter spoke to women across society to learn how they're coping. And I think it can be summed up by saying that in short, they're not. They talked about burnout, about losing businesses, about feeling like they have no quality time with their children beyond kind of feeding, watering, getting them through school how they have no time for their relationships and definitely no time for themselves. And two things struck me in the article that really stood out for me and that kind of stayed with me since. So I wanted to share them with you here. 
The first is Walter's rightly fury about how this impacts women on lower incomes. So she says, let's not forget how poverty still too often wears a female face in this country. Even before the pandemic, 22% of women as opposed to 14% of men had a persistent low income and 64% of low paid workers were women. A report published in February by Centre of London shows that 48% of women saw their disposable income drop in January compared to 41% of men. This new crisis for working mothers is also happening in a recession that is skewing female, with many job losses occurring in female-dominated industries such as hospitality and retail. In spring 2020 in the UK, women were five percentage points more likely than men to lose their jobs due to COVID. Now, I actually read an article last month that looked at unemployment figures in the US. And what they found was that in December 2020 in the US, net unemployment only affected women and it affected 140,000 women. So 140,000 women lost their jobs and failed to find another one in December 2020 in the US. Roughly 8,000 men lost jobs in December 2020 in the US as well, but 8,000 men also then got a job. So it evened itself out for men. It didn't for women. And that's the thing that's really terrifying. And I think we're not talking about enough here is that this isn't something that will be fixed once people go back to school. This is something that is having longer term impacts on women's working lives, on their careers, on their money and on their ability to look after themselves and their family. And then what really kind of plays into this is, I think, a second point that came, that sort of stuck with me from this article, which is how we then talk about women and men's careers, even when we are independent professional women who would describe ourselves as feminists and would rate our career as highly important, we still don't talk about our working lives in the same way we talk about men. So the article says, Julia split from her husband just before the pandemic, and he now does just one or two days childcare a week. Hard though it is, she sees her situation as pretty typical. She says, I have a WhatsApp group of friends. We were at school together. We're all in good jobs. We're GPs, lawyers, lecturers. In every single scenario, it's the mothers doing it all. Whatever the setup is, the husband gets away with less. You hear, my husband is self-employed, so he won't get paid if he doesn't work, so I'll do the homeschool. But also, I'm self-employed, so I can be flexible. I'll do the homeschool. My business folded due to the lockdown so I can homeschool. But also, my husband lost his job, so he needs to look for work. So I'll have to homeschool. What's going on? I have no answers for this, and I don't blame anyone for using those wordings or behaving in that way. I'm sure that I have done similar. But I think it's important that we talk about it and we own that even when we think we are taking control of our own working lives, even when we think that we are pushing for equality, a lot of the time, our unconscious behaviors mean that we are, well, essentially just perpetuating the stereotypes. If I haven't completely put you off motherhood, then you should enjoy my next guest. In her book, The Panic Years, Nell Frizzle wrote about finding herself suddenly single in her late 20s and having to completely reassess everything she knew about life planning and motherhood. Then she realized that while she was spending a lot of time on these questions, the men around her hadn't given them a second thought. We talked about why there's still a divide in how we talk about parenthood with men and women and just how to know if you're meant to have a baby. This is now. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Hi, Nell. 
Hi, Harriet. Nice to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. So tell us a little bit, first of all, about the period of time that the Panic Years looks at. What does it cover? Well, for me particularly, because it's a book, you know, primarily about my life experience. Mm. At 28, I, like a lot of people, came out of a long-term relationship. I was made redundant. I'd had to move back in with my mum. And I looked around and all around me, it felt like people were going through these seismic changes. They were either changing career or changing country or getting married or the big one, having babies. People were suddenly starting to get pregnant. And I felt like I was having a kind of reckoning with my future and with my fertility that felt really significant and really like quite a common shared experience, but we had no shared language for it. This wasn't like puberty and adolescence and it wasn't like menopause and the midlife crisis. This was something in between those two big social, emotional and physical transformations that we had no words for. And so you know, you can picture all the 30th birthday parties and weddings and engagement parties and after work drinks where the question that would swirl around the tables over and over again was, are you going to have a baby? If so, when, why, how, with whom? And off that big question splinters a whole load of other questions about mm. what kind of relationship do you want to be in? How much money should you be making? Where will you live? And in what kind of setup do you imagine having a family and all of those things? And it really felt like to unpick any question at that point in my life would mean unraveling the whole sort of spider's web <laughs> that was being being in the panic years. And so then cut forward, you know, as the book does to when I was 32 and I got pregnant and I suddenly realised that so much of what had been happening at the end of our 20s was because of this real sort of realisation that primarily women and people with uteruses have, which is you have a finite number of fertile years and you have to sort of get your life set up for either to have a family if that's what you decide to do or to not have a child if that's what you decide to do and you have to kind of get your ducks in a row a bit and the thing that really frustrated me and I think the thing that a lot of your listeners will identify with was that none of the men around me (laughs) seem to be having this kind of panic you know the whole burden of contraception and the decision about family and the you know to a large extent the decision about relationships was being plonked into the laps of women and I found that sort of you know to open that up and to just ask why and how does that look for people who are having different experiences to me my gay friends my friends who are having fertility treatment people who were doing different kind of jobs to me people who have having other sort of caring responsibilities what does it look like for them what did you discover about both those years and yourself in looking at other people's experiences? <laughs> well, I discovered that I slept with a lot of extremely ill-advised people in the search <laughs> Didn't for we that. all? <laughs> yeah. And that I think there is a sort of injustice inherent to the way we think about contraception and the way we think mm. about parenthood in this country. And that's, you know, to do with the way that young women and you know people with periods are sort of told that pregnancies happen in wombs and the fact that pregnancies happen because of sperm is almost written out of that kind of dialogue to a large extent and so I I you know I would talk to people who people who knew they never wanted to have children but they're there, there was always an expectation that secretly all women wanted to have babies and they were yeah. sometimes colluding somehow colluding with their bodies to kind of quote unquote trick people into getting pregnant which I find a sort of repulsive and you know Mm. really old-fashioned idea 
But also that for a lot of people, once you've made the decision to have a baby, that's when the really complicated hard work happens because, you know, the average age of a parent in the UK now for a woman is 30.6 years and for a man is 33. And at that point, you know, your fertility is not the same as it would have been in your early 20s. But there's such a, there's still sort of, there's a stigma about having children too young and there's a stigma about having children too old and there's a stigma about leaving the workplace in order to raise children. There's a financial obstacle to, you know, childcare. Basically, you're sort of, you're hamstrung in every direction. <laughs> That's what I discovered. And also that people who've chosen to have children carry an element of guilt about that because we know there's a huge environmental pressure put you know, put on on our natural resources by a sort of ever-growing population. And there's a strain on the NHS and on public service and all those kind of things. But that actually people who have chosen not to have children also carry guilt about leading another path, maybe that their parents will never become grandparents, that they are somehow being selfish to have other things in their life that give them meaning other than family. So I think, you know, I was I was really struck by the fact that everyone is carrying around a really kind of complex set of feelings around this transformational time and because we don't have a common language a lot of us think it's a personal crisis we think we're sort of navigating something that's private should be kept quiet should be dealt with on your own that is sort of unseemly to talk about with your friends and your peers and your family so I thought I'd march in there with my big orange book and tell everyone <laughs> about what happened to me in the hope that other people can then kind of follow on and talk about their experiences. Because I know so many people. And since the book's come out, I've been absolutely flooded with messages from people saying, thank God you've given this thing a name, because it was a really, a really significant sort of transformation that I thought I was alone in having. So tell us about what happened for you from that age of 28 <laughs> when you found yourself single and you're like oh my gosh this is not this is not the best timing what did you then go through well i then i like a lot of people i had to i was sort of thrown into sharp relief to think about who am i and what do i really want from the world and that like i say involved going going camping with a lot of strange men because I knew that some of the things that were important to me was like being outdoorsy and someone who was proactive and wanted to say yes to exciting invitations so I would leap on these unsuspecting men and say let's go up a mountain and go camping <laughs> um, and after a couple of years of that my self-esteem was sort of vaguely flat you know it was a bit like a sort of damp flannel that had been caught mm. behind a kitchen sink and I was you know I was lucky enough to be able to afford to have a therapist and you know to I have an open enough family that I could talk to people about it. And I realised that despite being a very politically engaged, self-identifying feminist whose work was really important to her and who had always been incredibly ambitious, that there was quite a deep, unavoidable desire to have a baby. And the weird thing about accepting that you want to have children is that if you know I I knew that if I was going to have children I wanted to do that with a partner mm. so that then meant that I was sort of vulnerable I had this sort of vulnerability where I was having to look around for not just a boyfriend but a potential father to a potential child and that that sort of changed things quite a lot and I I started to worry that maybe it wouldn't happen and that I would be very sad about that. And I know there are lots of people who choose not to have children and they're not sad about that at all. It's a brilliant, you know, life-affirming decision that they can take control and they're really happy with it. But for me, I wanted to have a baby. And so then, magically, I met someone, not even online, not even through an app. <laughs> I met a man through work and we, it, it was like... Uh, 
it, I instantly fell in love. That's all I can say. And oh. as, cra- as much as the 20-year-old Nell would say, what are you talking about? There's no such thing. <laughs> it did happen. And we ended up having like this amazing year together. But then I really wanted to have a baby. And when I said to him, do you want to have a baby? He said, I'm not sure. I don't know. And I thought he meant like you, Nell, I have for the last decade wrestled with all these questions about whether I should become a father. And I, you know, I'm really ambivalent about it. Turns out what he actually meant was, oh, I've never really thought about it. I don't know. I just don't know. You know, he had never, he'd never held a baby. He'd never been asked to babysit. Very few of his friends had become fathers yet. It was just not something in his kind of history that had had come up never really crossed his mind and obviously all the people that he'd been sexually involved with had either had sort of had it covered in terms of contraception and so he hadn't really even been confronted with the fact that his body could produce children you know that was that was even a sort of alien concept to him so we had this sort of turbocharged and extremely sort of rancid (laughs) period (laughs) where I would be campaigning and wheedling and sort of arguing and giving him good rational reasons of why I thought we should do it and then big emotional arguments about why I thought we should do it and eventually we did decide to have a baby and I I was incredibly lucky to get pregnant very quickly but then I discovered when I'd come out the other side that the panic hadn't ceased I was now in this like whole new identity and it was I'd sort of felt like the life that I'd had had been completely taken away from me and I didn't know who I was anymore. And I was thrown into what I call the daytime people, where you'd be sort of going from libraries to playgroups to cafes to park benches, sort of feeling a bit out of joint with the world that I thought I knew. And and it was then that I thought, actually, this is a really significant thing. And if we are going to if people are making the decisions about whether to have children or not, they need to know a bit about what it looks like in those, you know, early years when you do, because it's a massive change from, you know, and so then when my son was one, I wrote the book and um, it was really on sort of odd to walk back through that and sort of to see the, the, the ambivalence that I'd felt. There were times when I would, you know, be like, yet another spare person at a wedding on a table full of like the three single cousins and someone's granny thinking no I don't think I am ever going to have a baby and maybe I'll be single forever and actually maybe I'll just be one of those women who like lives in a hut and chops firewood for the rest of my life and I'll be happy with that and you know you just I think the panic is basically born of feeling out of sync with your peers or judged by the people Mm. around you and I think if I can alleviate that feeling of being judged for people to say actually we all have really complicated feelings the first time your friend a close friend gets pregnant you might not feel just happy for them you might feel quite jealous quite disappointed that your youth is over quite betrayed that they've done it before you felt ready sort of sad that your holiday is not going to go ahead all of you know I think it can be really complicated similarly when friends are getting married, you might feel sort of a bit shut out of the of their lives now because yeah. they have a different set of priorities and they're going to probably be going on a holiday with other couples. They might be living in a in a setup that you can't afford yet, all of that stuff. So I think there is still quite a lot of taboos around female friendship and female sexuality and reproductive health that, you know, I, th- I think we can keep talking about this for a long time before we've even got close to crack, like cracking the nut of, of what happens in your panic years. There's been 
some discussion recently that we should talk to young girls at school about their fertility and you know how their fertility works and the points at which it's at its peak and it's at its minimal. What do you think about that idea? Harry, I'm I'm genuinely ashamed to tell you that at 28 or maybe even 30, I didn't fully understand my how I ovulated when, how long that meant I was fertile for, at what time of the month I could get pregnant. I really, you know, and I'd been on the pill in most of my 20s, feeling incredibly bovine and my libido <laughs> fell through the floor. And so I was, I was like doing all the stuff, you know, and I'd, I'd obviously used condoms because I was worried about STIs and I had, yeah. you know, been fairly in touch with the fact that I menstruated and I, you know, was like not, not unknown mm-hmm. to having to change a tampon, you know, in a public toilet and all of that <laughs> stuff. But the fact was that I really didn't know until I started trying for a baby, how hard it can be to get pregnant, you know, and even if you're lucky enough to be healthy and your partner is healthy, there there aren't that many opportunities in a year that you can get pregnant. And I think, of course, we have to, we have to teach young people to be about consent and to, about the health implications of being sexually active and, and about all of that stuff. But we also need to inform them that having a baby is not this passive act that people talk about. Like, oh, you know, I'd like to have a baby. One day I'll have a baby. What are you going to call your baby? What kind of, how many babies would you like to have? <laughs> Actually, it can be a really complicated path for people. And, you know, my, obviously, like I say, my journey was incredibly lucky. I've never suffered a miscarriage. I've not had, you know, I haven't had a pregnancy that has had to be terminated. There are lots, you know, I've, I've been really lucky. But even for me, I remember the first time the first month where I didn't get pregnant, looking down into my knickers and feeling this huge sense of sort of loss and failure and anger and frustration because I'd only really just started to understand that it doesn't, it's not as soon as you decide something, it doesn't magic, your body doesn't follow suit necessarily. Yeah. And I've got friends who spent, you know, five, six years in that weird limbo period where you are quote unquote trying for a baby mm you're not yet pregnant and so yeah I do think if we could inform young girls but also young boys you know I yeah I've said this so many times but where is the hormone free side effect free contraception to be used by either gender you know I would love for there to be a male pill I would love for men to talk more openly about vasectomies I would love for people to have sort of an alternative to a woman pumping herself with hormones every month just in order to not have a baby it seems like that we must have moved on more than we you know in the last 50 years surely we could have something better than what we have at the moment do you think we also need to talk to boys about fatherhood differently because I think for a lot of men particularly men in their 30s you know fatherhood is this thing that basically ends your life (laughs) So, you know, it's this thing that happens and you want to avoid it for as long as you possibly can until the point Mm. when you're the only one of your mates that doesn't have a baby and then it looks kind of fun. So then you do it and you want to avoid all women in their 30s because all they want is a baby and as much as possible (laughs) only date 25 year olds or 45 year olds and nothing in between. Have um, you been reading my diary? This is definitely. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this no. Stuff I was having been a woman in her 30s. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. How do we, we talk, to talk to them differently about it? 
I think we need to talk for a minute, but I always think about, you know, the final scene in the Jungle Book where Mowgli mm. is taken away by that wily pot carrying <laughs> woman who's about to take it. Like all fun is going to end because he's joining the, the land of men. Yeah. I feel like in, in their 20s, there is a sort of cultural message not too dissimilar to that, which is eventually a woman is going to take you away from fun and she's going to make you have a baby. And then like suddenly... Your you're wearing ill-fitting, over. you're wearing ill-fitting polo shirts and watching telly all the time. And actually, <laughs> it really doesn't need to be that way. And you know, for a lot of men, having a child is the greatest creative act of their life. It's the most rigorous physical undertaking they're probably going to have. It's the most challenging emotionally, psychologically. It's an opportunity for like so much joy and softness and mm. you know adventure and. There is this sort of, I think, parallel to what you're saying, this idea that they have forever, which they mm. clearly don't. You know, we, yeah. there are a few, you know, everyone holds up Des O'Connor and Mick Jagger, or whatever, people who <laughs> have children, as if what we all aspire to be is like a very wealthy varnished man in our 60s. Like, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, and I, I remember talking to my partner about this, that he said his friends didn't really talk about fatherhood until a few of them had become fathers. Like the, yeah. the theoretical discussion about what it might look like, how they might manage it, at what age they might want to do it, was completely absent. Mm-hmm. And in a way that at, at a time when their female partners were absolutely talking about the finer points of how they wanted to think about their, you know, think yeah. about their future and their family. And also my friend Freddie makes this great point. He's a trans man that we really have to allow men the sort of softness, the gentleness, the sort of nurturing side of them, because there's so much focus on boys being strong and, you know, um, decisive and firm and even aggressive, challenge, all that stuff. But where's the opportunity to be caring and kind and responsible and, you know, all of those things. I've got a son. He's absolutely all of those things. Like he goes to bed, hold like nuzzle little red pepper from our veg box, like it's a baby. He's absolutely full of all the kind of parental, fatherly feeling that I would hope someone. I'd hope if I had a daughter, he would have been the same. Yeah. You know, we have to kind of encourage that and not let the not let people lose that in the pursuit of a sort of more socially acceptable form of masculinity. I know a lot of women have felt like the last year has sort of robbed them of an opportunity to have a baby. So I'm in my late 30s. I know a lot of women in their mid to late 30s who are single, who have been working their way through the single men of the UK and have yet to find a good one. Um, And who really are feeling like, you know, spending 2020 not being able to date anyone properly, not being able to think about their fertility or accessing fertility treatment, has really put them in the last chance saloon when it comes to having a baby. What advice do you have for them? Oh, I mean, more than advice, they just have my sympathy. You know, I've Mm. seen it up at close quarters that it is, it's really painful to lose a year. You know, that's to, that's to lose, like, if you only have a finite number of eggs to have lost 12 of them and, yeah. you know, to still be in, still be swiping the same old apps or to still be waiting for a clinic to open or to still be having the kind of desperate monthly kind of crying over a takeaway when your period arrives. It's really, it's really grim. I think all I would say is that 
for me anyway, and I, you know, this is a very personal example and it's obviously not going to happen for everyone. But when things start to, when you start to be open about what you want and kind of determined and, and not ashamed to admit that what you want is like a commitment or children or the support of your family and friends in order to undertake a major life change. People will support you if you allow them in. And if you show that vulnerability, mm-hmm. people will kind of hopefully rise to the occasion. And that, you know, there's absolutely no guarantee that if you want to have children, you will be able to. But you're not in that. Absolutely not alone in it. And if you can talk openly about how that makes you feel and your worries or frustrations or disappointments, you are allowing all the other people in your orbit who are feeling the same disappointments and frustrations and fear to share that with you. And, you know, it's not going to take away that pain, but at least it makes it, it takes the shame, the sting of shame out of something that absolutely shouldn't be shameful, I think. And I guess then the flip of that is for those people who after this year have realised that actually the thing that is important to them is family and creating a family. What are some of the things that are maybe the key questions we should ask ourselves before saying, yeah, this is it, I'm going for it? Oh, what, what should you be asking yourself before you make the plunge? Do you feel secure in, you know, in your relationship and financially? Those things are key. I discovered because I was able to get spontaneously pregnant after I had a baby, discovered I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford childcare. I could, you know, like we didn't, like my partner was retraining as a teacher. So he had no parental leave. He was making like 18,000 pounds that year. We were really stretched and we couldn't afford nursery. So that meant that what did I do? Mm-hmm. I had to work between four and six in the morning uh, before he woke up. And for a brief period while he was having an afternoon nap and any snatch of time when, you know, my mum or my partner's mum could take the baby off for an hour so I could do some work. So I wish slightly that I'd been a bit more savvy about that side of it. Also, whether your desire to have a baby what does like, why is it that you want a baby? You know, is it because you want to have a relationship of unconditional love? Is it because you have an aching in your body to undergo something sort of seismic and transformational? All of which are good reasons to do it. I wouldn't say, you know, that they they're that you're barking up the wrong tree, but I think it's worth kind of asking yourself what it is that you want from parenthood. Also, you know, I didn't read a single book. <laughs> <laughs> Parenthood. I was so focused on how labour would play out that I forgot to find out what happens after the baby comes out. I, I genuinely didn't know anything. You know, I knew what I'd gathered from watching my friends do it, but no one told me what temperature a room should be or how how long is normal for a baby to cry and all of this stuff that I, you know, maybe yeah. I should have spent more time babysitting very good advice now thank you so much for talking to us it's been lovely chatting to you i'm really looking forward to reading the book thank you Uh, now frizzles the panic years is out now i think you can just tell filled with lots of wit and warmth i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That was Nell Frizzle and her new book, The Panic Years, is out now. Finally for this week, I wrote a piece for the Irish Business Post on what to do if your company has decided you should work from home and you just don't want to. Here is a little sample. I'm a 30-year-old accountant and like many people have spent almost a year now working from home. It's not been a happy experience. I don't have a dedicated office space, I feel uncomfortable in Zoom meetings and I find it all too easy to get distracted. As a result, I got quite upset last week when my boss told me that working from home will remain a permanent feature of our business even when COVID-19 is over. I'm genuinely fearful about the effect this might have on my mental health. Apart from the loneliness factor, I worry that not being physically present will damage my chances of a future promotion. I would like to overcome my hang-ups about working from home, but don't even know where to begin. Please, can you offer me some advice? Now, you can read the full article on the Business Post website, and I'll put a link on my social media, at Harriet Minter. But I thought there will be lots of other people feeling the same, and it might be useful to just kind of recap what I said in that article. Because here's the thing. When I read that letter... The thing that struck me the most was here is somebody who is at the end of their tether and understandably so. You're trying to work in a cramped space where you don't have a dedicated office space. You are not working from home. You're living at work and you miss your colleagues. You hate Zoom calls. You're exhausted by it all. And then somebody tells you it's just going to keep going. And when you're feeling like that, it's really hard to see the wood for the trees. So the most important thing is to recognize that most of us right now don't have a lot of patience for anything that is a little bit trying. Most of us don't have the, sorry for using this word, bandwidth to deal with difficult situations. So when somebody tells us something that feels a little bit challenging or uncomfortable or not what we want, we are almost certainly going to have a bit of a cry about it and feel like the world is against us. And I want to tell you that that is okay. It is okay to do that. In fact, it's probably the best thing to do. So if you find yourself feeling completely bereft at the thought of continuing to work from home, have a bit of time off. So most of us have not taken any annual leave this year because we've thought we can't go anywhere. What's the point? But the problem is when we don't take annual leave, we don't give our brains a rest and we get exhausted and it becomes difficult to deal with the small things. So the first thing is to take some time off. Give yourself a break. Have a retreat from home if you can. Turn off your work emails. Don't check them. 
eat some nice food, do some good exercise, go on some nice walks. I know we're all over the walks, but find different ones. Read a good book, watch some movies, just try and allow your body to relax. Because when you do, you're going to come up with more creative ways to manage this situation. The first of which is create a better work home space. Now, if you don't have a dedicated space, and I say this recording this from my bedroom, so I know how you feel, you don't have a dedicated space, you need to find ways to create a kind of mental dedicated space. And what I mean by that is finding rituals and ways of behaving which differentiate work from home. So the really obvious one from this is the clothing you wear. Don't wear your work clothes when you're resting or your PJs when you're working. Pick an outfit that says, I'm working now. And when you put that on, you know you're in work mode. When you take it off, you know it's time to rest. Think about where you put your laptop. Can you make sure it's out of sight when you're not working? Can you do something simple like put different cushions on the sofa? If you work from the sofa, put different cushions on the sofa when you're working and when you're resting. And like I say, if you're working from the kitchen table, can you put a tablecloth on it when you're not at work? So it feels a little more homely. You just change the vibe a little bit. If your boss is telling you that you are now going to be working from home and you really don't want to be doing that, you need to talk to them about it. So talk to them about what they mean about working from home going forward. Do they mean working from home full time? Will there be any office space? Will you be required to come into the office at all? And explain to them your situation, you know, that you don't have dedicated space. We are not all the boss. We don't all have the boss's salary and therefore we don't all have the boss's house. So would they be prepared to pay for you to join a co-working space, for example? Or would they think about the fact that if you don't have that space available, how are they going to meet the kind of physical health requirements that keep you fit and well and are, quite frankly, legal? So it's actually their problem to manage rather than yours. And then if you're having problems with Zoom, have shorter meetings, right? None of us can really concentrate on a Zoom call for beyond about 45 minutes. So keep them at max 45 minutes. And that gives you time in between to step away from your desk, do some stretches, get a cup of tea, anything that gives your brain and your eyes a rest. You can also do things to make Zoom easier. Like in the settings, there is an option so that you can't see your own camera on Zoom. Makes it much easier to concentrate if you're not looking at your own face. Put a little gold star by the camera on your laptop, which encourages you to look into the camera rather than at the screen. And if you're finding it really hard, nobody is ever going to feel upset if you say, can we do this as a phone meeting rather than a Zoom? We're all over Zoom now. A phone meeting is a relief. Long term, do I think we're all going to be working from home five days a week forever? No, but I think most of us will enter a hybrid model. So now is the time to think about how you can make it work for you. Like I said, I'll put the full text of my reply to this question on my social media. So if you want to come and follow me, I'm at Harriet Minter on Twitter, Instagram, all the socials. And this is the end of this week's show. So if you've enjoyed it, do please rate, review, subscribe. The more you rate and review the shows, the more people can find them and the more listeners we get and the more questions I get. And it just grows and grows and it's generally lovely. So do me a favor. Five stars, please. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 